So, um, welcome. Uh, I'm so pleased to see all of you here. Um, uh, those of you who are here surely know that um, this is um, the special time of the year when we welcome you to the David B. Canner Memorial Lecture. Um, this particular lectureship was established at um, Dartmouth in 1974 in memory of David uh, Canner um, by his loving family and friends. And we have uh, his widow here today with us, uh, Margie Canner. And the Canner Memorial Lecture brings each year distinguished guest lecturers in the fields of surgery and oncology to the medical school, and uh, thereby we focus on ways to bring uh, new knowledge to all of us, our students, faculty, and the community at large. And we're so pleased to have this opportunity. David Kaner was um, a special person. He graduated summa cum laude from the University of Michigan, where he received his MD degree and from Wayne State Medical School. And he began a surgical internship in 1972 here at the Mary Hitchcock Memorial Hospital. And then in October of 73, David was diagnosed with uh, chronic myelogenous leukemia. And uh, he valiantly fought for the next 10 months, and during that period was accepted into a ophthalmologic residency program at the Mayo Clinic, where he had planned to begin working after completing his surgical training. However, after an all-too-short remission, David died in August of 1974, and by all standards, his life of 30 years was tragically short, and um, yet uh, we know from those who loved him best uh, that he lived each day to, to its fullest. And uh, his gentle manner, his concern for others, his commitment to his profession, those were felt um, by all whose lives he touched. And Dartmouth is honored, and we're very pleased to have this memorial lectureship in tribute to his memory. And so we're very glad that all of you are here. And with that, um, I want to uh, welcome an old friend, Marston Lenahan, uh, who is now the chief of surgery at the uh, NIH. Uh, Marston received his uh, internship and residency and fellowship training in urology at Duke University, and then began his career at the National Cancer Institute in 1982. Uh, with positions as senior investigator and urologist in charge. We have in the government some peculiar titles, but now you can all recognize the title of surgeon in chief at the NIH and chief of the urological oncology branch at the National Cancer Institute. And Marston is uh, not unique, but is special amongst urologists in that he's had a long-standing interest in uh, genetics and genomics and has had long-standing collaborations with very significant geneticists and played a major role in understanding uh, now a series of genes that are important for a reasonably large variety of different tumors, the most famous of which is the VHL gene that all of you know as the gene uh, important in von Hippel-Lindau and Marston's important contributions around its role in clear cell renal carcinoma. And then the MET gene for hereditary renal carcinoma and FLCN for uh, a much smaller group of tumors and TFE3 for other kidney cancers. I actually don't know the names of all these new different diseases because they were established after I uh, um, had any contact at all with um, individuals with renal carcinoma. And now, of course, uh, the work on fumarate hydrogen and succinate dehydrogenase and the definition of yet additional new syndromes and new diseases that previously were unknown. And his work in this area really has provided the basis for um, new diagnostics, new therapies, and new approaches to treating kidney cancer. And he and his colleagues have really defined methods for clinical management of virtually all um, aspects of uh, kidney cancer associated with hereditary forms of the disease. Um, 
Marston has a long, long list of many pages, actually, of honors. He's a member of the National Academy of Medicine. He's uh, editorial board of, over the years, of numerous uh, different uh, journals. Uh, he's received the very prestigious Joe uh, Birchenall Memorial Award um, for outstanding achievement from the American, Acad uh, American Association of Cancer Research and just a whole slew of other awards, not only in his chosen specialty of urology, but in cancer medicine and cancer uh, research in general. And so, Marston, it's a special treat to have you here. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll let you have some fair chance of finishing on time here. Okay. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you. Dr. Ezio, for the really kind words. And I, you know, we all stand on the shoulder of giants and we all um, make progress um, working together. Um, my, I was mentioning someone last night that, and and we all owe great debts to those who, you know, mentored us, taught us when we were young. And one of those for me happens to be Market Dr. Israel. My first uh, paper that I was co-author on a paper in PNAS. PNAS was with was with which was a big deal for me at the time. Was with Dr. Israel and early on, and he was incredibly nice to me when I was a young guys we say in the trade and so i'm i'm very uh, appreciative of the kind words and i'm also very touched uh, to have been selected uh, to uh, be the david kaner uh, lecturer of this year and was so happy to have the chance to meet uh, marjorie long earlier and talk a little bit about him and uh, and all the wonderful uh, experiences you all have had here with speakers and different things over the uh, over the length of this um, of this wonderful lectureship, so as uh, Dr. Israel mentioned, I'm a, a urologic surgeon. I'm at the National Cancer Institute. Can you all hear me in the back? Is okay with this? That work right? Okay. So what I'm going to talk about is our work on kidney cancer, and. Um, what I really want to communicate is um, everything we have learned, anything we have learned about this disorder, we learned by studying patients. We learn from studying, we, as we say, we study the human model of cancer. We have, uh, I don't know, 750 cages of knockout, knock-in mice with different kidney cancer models and 500 cages of models with uh, nude mice with xenograft models growing and things. But, but our great cell lines that are genetically defined and everything, but our most important model is the human model. And that's what we've studied. Any progress we've made has come from that. And I'm going to show you a little bit of that, uh, that process. So, oh, to start with, I don't have any financial interest. I don't receive direct payments uh, from a commercial entity with respect to this or any activity and take zero money, including from Dartmouth. Uh, I, do, uh, I do intend to discuss the off-label investigational use of a couple, a few drugs, uh, erlotinib and ferretinib. Uh, so we're going to talk about kidney cancer. And kidney cancer affects nearly 300,000 people uh, worldwide, responsible for over 100,000 deaths. In the U.S., it's about 63,000 estimated for this year, with about 14,000 deaths. And we estimate, it's estimated that there are 200,000 people alive with this disease. Now, when I started off 30 years ago uh, studying kidney cancer at the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, I'm a urologic surgeon. So if a patient comes uh, to someone like me or like Dr. John Singh here at Dartmouth with localized disease, disease in the kidney, a T1 tumor, we can take that out surgically. Now, the wisdom of should you operate or not is a whole different issue. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we can take that out and give that patient a 95% 
five or really 10 year survival. So we don't quite use the C word, the cure word, but 95% of those people would be disease free in 10 years. Now, however, when we started out, if a patient came to us with advanced disease, 81% of these people's family had a funeral within 24 months, within two years. 19% two-year survival. So we decided, and at the time, kidney cancer was a single disease. We treated them all the same surgically. We gave patients with advanced disease all the same drugs, none of which worked. And we now know, our work has taught us, that kidney cancer is not kidney cancer. It's not a single disease. Kidney cancer is a number of different types of diseases with different histologies, shown here, different clinical course, responding differently to therapy, and caused, as I will show you, by different genes. We now know of 15 different genes, most of them hereditary, that cause kidney cancer. I'll show you something in a minute where I'll give you, you know, 50, 40 genes that are mutated in kidney cancer from our TCGA study. But ones that cause disease, we know of at least 15. And what we have come to understand over the years is that, and I'll show you a little bit of this, is that kidney cancer is fundamentally a metabolic disease. These are the 15 known kidney cancer disease genes, and I'll show you a few of these. And we come to understand that, that each of these genes fundamentally works in the same pathway. Each of these genes encodes for proteins that modulate the cell's ability to sense changes in the environment, changes such as oxygen sensing, iron sensing, nutrients, or more specifically, in the case of the Krebs cycle, TCA cycle enzyme gene mutations, energy sensing. So when we started off in the early 80s, when I was doing work with Mark Israel, uh, we uh, started looking at tumors from patients with kidney cancer, with uh, sporadic kidney cancer. And we showed that there was a, we were looking like, okay, when I say we, I mean we. Uh, my, uh, my, uh, we work with, my assistant told me the other day, we work with 142 people from 29 different labs and branches from nine different NIH institutes. So this really is a trans-NIH pro program and has been for, forever, uh, for long, you know, since we started, since the beginning. Uh, and we started this work with my dear friend and colleague, Bert Zabar, and have worked over the years with many other people that I'll show you toward the end of the program. But when Bert and I started on this, we showed that there was a loss of a segment of chromosome 3 in tumor tissue from patients with kidney cancer. So we, we uh, in this paper, we published this in Nature, and we were thrilled about this. And we put in the discussion that we predicted and where we got the chutzpah to do this, I really don't know. But we put this in there, and I said, Bert, I don't think so. You know, I think this may be a little too pushy. And he said, well, let's see what they say. If they like the work and take it and want to take it out of the discussion, fine, we'll do that. But they like that, and they want us to leave it in, so we did. And if you look at that discussion, we'll say that what we predicted was that loss of this, second, loss of this segment of chromosome 3, and this was done by... Southern Broad Analysis, by those of you who have been in this a while, the RFLP analysis in the old days. Uh, we started this before PCR was invented, basically. And we showed that there was a consistent loss here, and we predicted that this loss would be indicating the presence of a kidney cancer disease gene on chromosome 3, on the other side, that it was a two-hit gene. We'd learned a lot from Al Knudsen, Dr. Knudsen who has been our mentor all these years. And we predicted that 
that this gene would affect the cell's ability to respond to changes in its environment. And, and who knew that we would be right about both? So we did a lot of mapping for a number of years in these tumors, and we were so, we're going to find this kidney cancer gene and this, that, and the other. And I'll, I'll never forget the day, you know, we spent years on this, and the day we sat around in my office, Bert's Bar and myself and Michael Learman, and we came to the conclusion with, we talked to Bert Vogelstein and every great scientist we could think of about strategies, and this was before there was a human genome project, and we came to the conclusion that my lab, working 13 hours a day, six days a week, and Bert Zabar's lab, working 13 hours a day, six days a week, with the tools available to us in the middle 80s, that we could definitely find a disease gene in this location within 54 and a half years. So we kind of thought we were nice people, but we kind of, I'll never forget that pain in my stomach. I thought, oh my God, what are we going to do? We thought we were nice people, but we didn't figure they'd fund even us for that long. So we shifted gears, and that's the, that's, every place is special. Dartmouth is special, and, and Northwestern is special, and UCLA and UCFF, every place. But where we work, great thing, fortunate thing for us is if we want to shift gears overnight, we can, basically, if, it's, if we can justify it. So we then shifted gears and set up a hereditary a program to study cancer families with kidney cancer. So we brought patients in, put together a team that would do phenotype assessment in these families uh, and determine who was affected, who wasn't. And our hope was then to be able to do genetic linkage analysis. That's what Al Knudsen told us. He said, Marston, if you can find families with your disease, if you want to study kidney, if there are such, and you could potentially then do phenotype assessment, do linkage analysis, and use the power of genetics, you could make your own probes, do the power of genetics to identify disease genes, and uh, that's what we have worked on all these years, and I'll show you that a little bit. And then the idea was to do physical mapping to identify disease genes. This was before there was a map. It was before there was four, long before there was next-gen sequencing, obviously. We did all this by hand. So I'll show you briefly a, a few types of hereditary kidney cancer that we study as examples of the kind of work that uh, we do. And we, we think that... Uh, uh, there's merit in these approaches. So we started with this, which was the, at the time the, the only known form of hereditary kidney cancer, really. Uh, von Hippel-Lindau, or VHL, hereditary cancer syndrome, patients at risk to develop tumors in a number of locations, including, which is what we'll focus on, including bilateral multifocal kidney cancer. So these patients are at risk, as we say, for these tumors, also cysts, and also cysts with tumors inside cysts. So this is the kind of thing you can see. These are very large tumors in the kidney. This is in the renal vein. I took out this man's left kidney today. As Dr. Singh will tell you, we wouldn't do this. We wouldn't do an nephrectomy. This was in the early 80s. The way you dealt with cancer was you took out the kidney. Uh, and I'll show you a little bit how we progressed to different ways of thinking, uh, knowing the gene. In other words, if in we have time, we'll talk a little bit about the Precision Medicine Initiative of the President and how excited we are about all that. But Dr. Varmus told me once when he became director of NCI, he said, you know, you, you've been doing translational and precision medicine for 25 years before this term was, was coined. I said, well, that's true. I said, it's kind of all we know. I mean, it's what we do. So, you know, we'll sort of walk through that a little bit. But anyway, so um, these people get these kidney tumors. Uh, they get these cysts with tumors inside cysts. And we, in science, we don't say always, often, you and I, but these are always clear cell. Okay, I looked at thousands of these. They're always clear cell kidney cancer, hereditary, autosomal dominant hereditary cancer syndrome. So when we look at these normal kidneys, normal kidneys, we estimate these patients get up to 600 tumors per kidney. So these are, in the old days, in my field, my field didn't understand the term lead time bias. And so uh, they would publish things like, well, this is not real kidney cancer, these VHL kidney tumors. 
they didn't understand that if you detect something when it's small, they can be slow growing, you know, like we understand about prostate cancer and everything. VHL kidney cancer is just like sporadic clear cell, uh, non-hereditary clear cell. It's identical to it as far as its growth rates, metastatic potential. Patient comes to us, large tumor, sadly has pulmonary mets, and we have a very, you know, we know exactly what size uh, they get metastases. So we've managed these patients over the past 30 years and developed an approach to therapy. Uh, which, it, it, when we started this, Marston, you've been in NIH too long, son. Uh, that's not the way we manage cancer. Uh, doing, watching these tumors when they're small. I said, well, you know, that's right. But uh, the first patient I saw with this disorder, I took out both kidneys. I was a young guy. That's how you treat cancer. There's no question. That's what the great people in our field and at NIH uh, said. And that's the way we did things where I trained. You, you know, you never forget things in life. I took that patient down to the front of the NIH Clinical Center, put him in a taxi cab to go home to dialysis, and I said, never again. They can fire me, but I'm not going to do this again. And we developed an approach of doing partial nephrectomies on these patients, and then we would see people. We wouldn't take out their kidneys. I'd do partial nephrectomies, take out just the tumor, save the rest of the kidney, but we were operating these people and re-operating, and one day I was doing surgery with one of the fellows, and I'll never forget, and we, we were closing that case, putting, in this, putting the muscle back together and everything. I said to this guy, I said, you know, we're going to have to start putting zippers in these people. I said, you know, this is ridiculous. So we operate and re-operate. So we then developed an approach of doing active surveillance. We did a bunch of tumor growth rates and measurements and looked at all the literature, and we picked three centimeters as, 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 a, as a threshold. And so we recommended doing three centimeters until the largest tumor reached three centimeters, then we'd recommend surgical intervention. When we operate, we operate. We've taken out as many as 92 tumors in a single operation on a single kidney. Um, so we do. But again, in my field, they use the term malpractice. They said not consistent with good medicine. Now, of course, that's the way these are managed uh, worldwide. Three of these diseases, I'll show you. Um, and, you know, as a surgeon, I'm, of course, very superstitious. And so I don't like to say this out loud. Because uh, as of um, April 23rd, what is today? 23? Uh, as of today, 19, 2016, uh, March, I mean, we have not had yet, we may tomorrow, we've not yet had one, not one patient develop metastatic disease when managed in this fashion. And that includes this disease, the next disease, and the one after that. But that's a very different way to handle surgically the next three. I'll show you after that. Now, we manage the surgical, and also it changes our operation depending on the gene. I'll show you that. So we manage all these people robotically now. We do almost all these cases robotically. And I'll just show you very quickly, just for one reason. So this is a robotic partial nephrectomy. This is the tumor here we're taking out. And as you can see, we're coming around it robotically. This is the tumor down here. This light doesn't work for it. This is the tumor down here. Uh, if somebody, sorry, my finger's in the way. And as you can see, we're coming right around the tumor. So we're enucleating it just like this, coming right around it. Now, if you're going to take out 50 or 60 tumors from a single kidney, you can't leave much normal. So this is the way to do it. Now, in this time period, we've not had a single problem doing this. In other words, this has worked fine for this, for the next, and the next. Very different from how we do surgery on the last three because those tumors, because of the gene, are infiltrative, and we do a very different operation there, and I'll show you that in just a second. Now, so we brought patients in. This is the, the Clinical Research Center of the National Institute of Health here, the CRC, the Natural Clinical Research Center. This is the, the other part of Building 10 where I was for 20 years before we moved into the, into the new hospital. We brought patients in, did phenotype assessment, determined who's affected, who wasn't. We evaluated 4,312 DNAs uh, to localize this disease gene to the short arm of chromosome 3 
and then finally to do uh, to localize it here and then to do physical maps here. And this was the seventh cDNA that we looked at. We called it G7, which turned out to be the human VHL gene, 3-exon gene. We look for mutations that separate with the disease. And that's what we find now in 100% of our families. We find alterations in the gene. In other words, this is the disease gene, of course, for this disease. Now, this, this uh, gene is very different from some of the others I'll show you in that it's kind of like a genetics graduate student's dream. We have every single type of genetic change you can imagine just about in the germline. Two-thirds are intragenic, frame shift, nonsense, or stop, uh, frame shift, nonsense, uh, or missense. Uh, about 30% uh, are deletions. Took us a while to figure this out. 23% uh, are partial, and about 7% are complete, and 5% of alterations are like mechanical defects or splicing. Um, so then we wanted to see, was this the gene we'd look for for so long? Was this the gene for the non-inherited type of kidney cancer. So we looked at tumors from patients with non-inherited sporadic kidney cancer, looked for mutation, looked for mutation and loss, and that, of course, is, is what we find. In our most recent work uh, with Lee Moore and Mike Nickerson, we detect either mutation or methylation of the VHL gene in nearly 90% uh, 412 tumors from patients with clear cell kidney cancer. And one of the other genes I'll show you in a minute, that's one of our binding partners to VHL, called Elongin C or TCEB1, is mutated in about 4%. So you're looking at about a 95% mutation methylation rate of VHL or TCEB1, its binding partner. So that is clear cell kidney cancer. We do not find alterations. We do not find, have not found alterations in other types of kidney cancer, type 1 papillary, type 2, chromophobe, oncocytic, hybrid, medullary. So this was the first indication to us that there is a genetic differentiation of different types of kidney cancer. So VHL turned out to be a classic Knudsen two-hit model. We took cells from patients with clear cell kidney cancer, the VHL mutation, grew them in the lab, put them in a mouse, made a tumor. We made one change in those cells. We re-expressed VHL, put V back in, and we would get either no tumor or very small tumor. So we thought good evidence to us that this is a two-hit loss of function gene. When we found this gene, it was a totally novel gene. We had no idea how this worked. We started working with Rick Klausner, at the time uh, on, this, uh, on this pathway. And we should, we now know, I'm going to fast forward now about 15 years, uh, we now know that the um, VHL protein, uh, the product binds along in C, along in B, which we found in 95 uh, with Roxanne Duan was the first author on that paper. And, um, but we published this in science and everything, but, but we still didn't know how this worked until uh, Arnold Paz, who was a postdoc with Rick uh, Klausner, pulled down, we did, ran a long-range gel and sequenced a bunch of proteins this time, and pulled out this one, COL-2. Uh, and COL-2 was, at the time, this was 97, well, it was 20 years ago almost, uh, COL-2 was part of a recently discovered, identified uh, tumor suppressor family, the colons, in helminths and in worms. And so, then that you go to the yeast and figure out that this was had to be part had to be part of an E3 uh, to target uh, uh, some other target for ubiquitin mediated degradation and of course uh, then we and we and Bill Kalin at the same time showed that that uh, that VHL regulated hypoxia inducible uh, 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 gene transcription. Uh, but it was Peter Radcliffe who showed that the target was hypoxia-inducible factors. So we now know, and then Bill Kalin did this incredibly elegant work showing that uh, the VHL, that it's through prohydroxylase, hydroxylating uh, in the, in the uh, oxygen-dependent domain of HIF, and that what VHL is doing is targeting that normally during normoxia, when there's normal oxygen, you can see it. You can target it because of the hydroxyl groups and degrade it. 
But then in hypoxia, you don't have the oxygen, so V complex can't see HIF, and then HIF accumulates and then over-transcribes, as it were, the hypoxia-inducible factors. Now, in VHL and in sporadic clear cell kidney cancer, it doesn't matter. Wherever the mutations are, either in the alpha domain that targets the binding partners or the beta domain, which targets HIF, either way, it's like the cell thinks it's short of breath, right? In other words, it can't target HIF, so HIF accumulates, so you get the transcription of things like VEGF, PDGF, PGF-alpha, EGFR complex, this, that, and the other. So that has led over the years, we're going to fast forward another 10 years, that has led us to, led, led us to see the FDA approve uh, seven targeted drugs that target this pathway for patients with advanced kidney cancer. And it's, it makes my knees weak to think about this. I mean, it's breathtaking. We see response in up to 45%, depending on the on the, on the agent in patients with advanced clear cell. However, with this approach, we're seeing very, very few cures. We can give prolonged disease-free intervals. We can see increased survival, but we've got to do better uh, to uh, treat these patients. So why is that? So this is our work from the Cancer Genome Atlas, uh, looking at other genes, looking at you know, 500 tumors, looking at you know, this was with 350 other people. It's an incredible group. And we showed um, that, as others had shown previously, we showed, of course, VHL, obviously, but then other chromosome 3 genes, PBRM1, SETD2, BAP1, as Andy Fertrail had shown earlier, uh, a, a few of these, uh, that, uh, that uh, these chromosome 3 chromatin remodeling genes were also mutated. And SETD2 and BAP1 are mutations are increased in high-grade, high-stage, low-survival cancer. Okay. So, uh, and, and then, uh, so this is, of course, clear cell. And then comes this work, which I know you've all have seen. This was in Northern Journal, and then follow-up paper in Nature Genetics by Charlie Swanton's group. Incredible. So to, again, to someone like Dr. John Singh, he would say, this is obvious that if you take out a tumor like this, like many of us do, this is a, a nine centimeter kidney cancer, and you look at the different regions here, they're very different. Some will be necrotic, some will look like straight clear cell. As a surgeon, you know all this. You look at these, you say, sure. But what Charlie Swanton did was he looked at that and he did intensive genomic analysis in each of these areas and he found very significant genomic heterogeneity. So that raises the following question. So what Charlie showed was that his group showed was that uh, the truncal mutation was VHL. You saw VHL in every location. But then you would go to these breakpoints like SETD2 or BAP1 would go off one way and you would get clonal evolution there. Dizifying to think about. So then you have the following question if you're a clinician, and that is, all right, you have a patient comes to you with, we'll say, kidney cancer that has spread. So what should we do here to get driver mutation? Should we take the primary tumor and sequence a bunch of places, find driver mutations? and treat the VHL pathway in those pathways? Or should we take metastatic tumors from those patients? As surgeons, we have our ways of getting those things. So, and sequence them. That's the metastatic disease. That's got to have the most important driver mutations, doesn't it? So how do you think about this? So, should we do both? So, I asked Charlie that very question. And he said, you're asking me? I said, well, you know, I said, what do you think? He said, well, what we think is that the money is in targeting the truncal mutation, targeting the VHL pathway. That happens to be what we think. Doesn't mean that we're right, but that's my, it's been my sense all, all these years. I think we need to do a better job at targeting that. We've looked at a number of approaches with the usual suspects that have been approved by the FDA, other things. We're now getting ready to do trials targeting HIF itself. And we're hopeful that that will get us home, but we'll see. But 
The other thing we showed back to the TCGA paper was the following. That kidney cancer, a little bit like another cancer I'm going to show you in a minute, another type of kidney cancer, undergoes a metabolic evolution. That high-grade, high-stage, low-survival kidney cancer shifts, does a metabolic shift to aerobic glycolysis and decrease oxidative phosphorylation, consistent also with the glutamine-dependent reductive carboxylation for fatty acid synthesis. I'll explain all that in just a minute. So basically, more simplified approach is decrease oxphos, glutamine-dependent reductive carboxylation for fatty acid synthesis, and a switch to aerobic glycolysis, which means pyruvate going to lactate instead of going to TCA cycle. So then if you think about it, it gives us a lot of interesting targets that we could look at, we and others are looking at now, targeting glutaminase, targeting this pathway here with metformin, finformin, targeting fatty acid synthesis. And NCI has a huge program, uh, which Lynn Neckers is co-leading in our group, uh, to look at targeting LDH. So you think about it, you could have a synthetic lethal approach here. If you think there's two predominant sources of carbon for the TCA cycle in glucose and glutamine, but if you could hit both, you might have some real synergy. So all I'll say at this point is, it's a very interesting approach, and we're very hopeful about it. So how about other types of kidney cancer? Non-clear. How about the papillaries, chromophobe, other types of kidney cancer? Well, again, it's all from patients. So this was a, a little girl, a young woman that I saw in 1987, 21-year-old, came from Ohio with her mom, her, her worried mom, and I took out that kidney, that left kidney, on uh, uh, April 21st, 1987. And she went on to die January 8th, 1988, seven months later, of metastatic disease. And I asked our great pathologist, Maria Marino, what kind of kidney cancer is that? She said, Marston, it's papillary kidney cancer. Well, it's a bad papillary kidney cancer. So then, a few years later, I saw this little girl, this young woman, who's 18. She came up with her mom from Charlottesville, North Carolina. I took out her kidney on May 23rd. And she went on to die February 1st, 1990, of metastatic kidney cancer. And her mom died. 14 months after that of metastatic disease, I asked Maria, what kind of ca cancer is this? She said, it's papillary kidney cancer. Took us 18 years to figure out what she had. So this guy, in uh, March of 92, 71-year-old uh, man with metastatic kidney cancer, multiple tumors in his kidney, bilateral. This was his sister. She had multiple tumors in her kidney. This was his son we saw in April of that year, had multiple tumors in his kidney. Maria, what kind of pathology is this? Marston, it's papillary kidney cancer. Okay, so show you each of these are different diseases, different treatments. So I'll start with the last one. So this was that hereditary papillary renal cancer family that I saw, this hadn't been described before, we call this hereditary papillary renal carcinoma. Yellow is patients with kidney cancer in this family, highly penetrant, autosomal dominant, hereditary cancer syndrome, bilateral multifocal type 1 papillary kidney cancer. We estimate they get up to 2,000 tumors per kidney. I took out this man's left kidney. I wouldn't do that again. Uh, we would do a partial on this. I didn't know, we didn't know the difference between this and the other two I showed you. Uh, I thought, this is going to kill these people. So this, it turns out, is a very different disease than those other two. Highly penetrant, late onset, 95% uh, penetrant by the age of 80. Uh, we have, as you can see, this is the tumors in the kidney. We have developed a three-centimeter approach to management of this. Again, we've had a bunch of these people develop metastatic disease, but none would manage in this fashion, largest tumor, three-centimeter disorder. So we lo localized this to long arm of chromosome 7. Turned out to be the MET gene, which is, of course, the cell surface receptor for the ligand hepatocyte growth factor, HGF. 
These patients have activating mutations in the tyrosine kinase domain of this gene, which, is, which we see in the TCGA project in 13% of tumors from patients with sporadic uh, type 1 papillary kidney cancer, or sporadic papillary kidney cancer, uh, higher in the type 1 papillaries, but certainly not 100% at all. I mean, low percent, but certainly there. However, when we look at amplification, we see increased copy number very characteristically in copy gain in the type 1 papillary kidney cancers. So exactly how this works in type 1 papillary kidney cancer, we don't understand yet. So we said, can we target this? So we used a drug, Fretinib, which is a dual kinase VEGFR and MET inhibitor. This patient that I mentioned that I took out his left kidney in the spring of 1992, in the summer of that year, I took out 19, we took out 19 tumors from his remaining solitary right kidney. Fine. Over the years, he developed more tumors, as we've come to expect. And in, the, in July of 2000, took out an additional 59 tumors from his remaining right kidney. He's doing fine. Has a little bit of renal insufficiency, an EGFR of about 54, creatinine of about 1.4 doing fine, going back and forth to Little League Baseball uh, games, PTA meetings. However, um, as we've come to expect again by 2006 or so, develops tumors in his kidney. His largest tumor is 3.4 centimeters. We don't like that. We don't want him to die of metastatic disease like his father did. So Ram Srinivasan and our group put him on Fretinib. When he came back for the first evaluation after we started this drug eight weeks later, his tumor had gone from 3.425. And the fellows in the group, in surgical fellows in training, said to me, Dr. Linehan, uh, this patient's tumor is less than three centimeters. This is no longer surgical. I said, exactly. I said, that, of course, is what we're working toward, to make every tumor, all of our tumors, all of our kidney tumors, non-surgical. So we continued him on drug, and we had to stop when he developed some retinal toxicity when uh, almost all the tumors had disappeared. This one was down, just barely down to 1.4, barely detectable. So when we looked at all of the tumors from the patients with MET mutations, every single tumor got smaller during therapy. We had never seen anything like this before. Now, are we home yet? No, we're not home yet. But we feel this is proof of principle. This was the first time targeting gene in papillary kidney cancer sees tumors get smaller. But we are hopeful about this. We have a number of clinical trials looking at these patients that's met. I'm going to go over these last two briefly. Uh, and that is this one, the little girl, the 21-year-old. The, uh, so we took this tumor, we put it in culture. Nine years later, eight years later, we showed that these cell lines were characterized with Colin Cooper. These cell, these cell lines were characterized by translocation from chromosome 1 to the X chromosome. And then in 96, we showed that what was being activated from multiple different directions was the TFE3 gene. So in September of 1996, we described what we called TFE3 kidney cancer, which now, of course, would make the diagnosis by fish, very straightforward. We now know that TFE3 kidney cancer is responsible for 20 to 45% of kidney cancers in children and young adults, and is part of the TFE3, TFEB, MITF uh, transcription family. We see mutations in all three of these genes in kidney cancer, and MITF in the germline, and we showed in TCGA that this is more common than we thought, and it's not just young people. We saw TFEB uh, translocations in a 68-year-old and 71-year-old, and in a number of tumors in the TCGA clear cell that were said to be clear cell kidney cancer. So we think this is more common than we previously had shown. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to skip over this very briefly because I want to get the last one to show you that in closing. So this is Berthold Dubay, BHD. Uh, hereditary cancer syndrome. With patients get uh, Berthog and DeBay described this, they get funny skin bumps. These are fibrofolliculomas, benign skin lesions. We showed these people get kidney cancer. 
can be solitary, multifocal, they can be large, they can spread. These are real cancers. They get different histologies. We developed the same approach to therapy, three centimeters. And again, we've had a number of these people develop metastatic disease, but none when managed in this fashion. So these three. These people get lung cysts. I'm going to go through this quickly. We did genetic linkage analysis, localized the gene on the short arm of chromosome 17, found the gene we call FLCN for folliculin. We detect mutations now in 97% of our BHD families. And this is, I'm going to skip to the pathway here. This is, this is what got us into the metabolic basis of kidney cancer. This is folliculin. These are the two proteins that bind to it. We call it folliculin interacting protein 1 and 2, FNP1, 2. And they bind to AMPK, the gamma subunit AMPK, right at the energy sensing domain. So we said, oh my word, we're in the LKB1, P10, TSC1, TSC2, mTOR pathway. And so then we started looking at the metabolic basis of our other forms of kidney cancer. And we know that uh, when flicculin is, is mutated, is damaged in these cancers, that we can activate TORC1 and TORC2. So we're starting a trial uh, targeting TORC1, and eventually we'll be targeting TORC1 and 2 in these families. But what I want to show you in closing is this one. This is the most humbling thing I've ever been involved with. This, little, this young woman, the 18-year-old, turned out to have what's called hereditary lyomyomatosis renal cell cancer, HLRCC. These patients get cutaneous lyomyomas, uterine lyomyomas, and kidney cancer, autosomal dominant hereditary cancer syndrome, get cutaneous lesions that are in the erector pilae which is an energy sensor to, to tell, to contract, to make what you call goosebumps when you get cold. This is a very ancient energy-preserving mechanism, and it's in the erector pilae here. And it's like the cells just think it's cold all the time, and they keep contracting, and you can get very, very painful uh, pattern of cutaneous lyomyomas that don't cross the midline of all things. They, they can cluster on either side, but I'll show you when they stop right at the midline. 94% of our women have uterine lyomyomas. In our initial report, 50% of them have had hysterectomies in their 20s for this disorder. Um, the kidney cancer in this patient you wish you'd done some things differently in life. After she died and her mom died, we couldn't find them, and we couldn't find them, and we couldn't find them. I wish I'd driven to Charlottesville and gone to the police station and said, you've got to help me find this family. Because between the time we originally saw that family, and I saw them again 18 years later, she died, her mother died, her brother died, her uncle died, her grandmother died, her great aunt had died of kidney cancer, and we saw her first cousin who's a 28-year-old school teacher who came to us with advanced disease and really declined therapy and died of metastatic disease. This is the second patient I saw. I took out his kidney and the disease in the cave. He died 17 months later. This patient came to us with, with you see, they, see how they don't, don't cross the midline? He's got these cutaneous lyomyomas. He came to, they get cysts and they get tumors here in their kidney. His tumor was one half centimeter. And we initially saw him, he had a positive lymph node, one half centimeter tumor. He had a lymph node that was positive. I sent this during the operation to Marie Reno, and she called me and said, Marston, this 32-year-old whose dad died of kidney cancer, I said, yeah, the one has got the small tumor, I said, yeah. He said, that node's positive. Big time disease. So this we do not do active surveillance on. This and TFE3 kidney cancer, what I'm not going to show you, which is succinate dehydrogenase kidney cancer, you don't do active surveillance on. When we see them, uh, we, do, we don't do robotic. We do open surgery. They get multiple tumors. And we go very wide on these. And I'll show you that, and then I'll close. So this is a very characteristic type of kidney cancer with, with prominent nucleoli and perinucleolar halo. It's really pathognomonic for this uh, disorder. We've seen this in 10-year-olds. We've seen it in 77-year-olds. They have lifelong risk of this disease, very different than VHL. 
And this is a 24-year-old we saw who came. She had that CT scan. I couldn't call that. She came back three months later, had an MRI. We weren't sure there was a tumor there. But then she came back, had a CT and an MR, and we saw this, so we operated. Went way wide, took out lower half of her kidney, and Maria called me, Maria Marino, a pathologist, called me and said, Marston, you've got to look at this. I said, yeah, what do you got? She said, well, you got tumor in the cyst. And she said, see the cyst? I said, yeah. And she said, but Marston, this tumor, she wasn't that big. She said, but this tumor was infiltrating into the normal kidney. I said, Maria, I said, we couldn't see that surgically, and we couldn't see it on imaging. I said, don't tell me I left a positive margin, because I know we've, I've done, we've done it in the past. We didn't know about this disease, and you leave, you spill cells that develop disease all throughout the peritoneum, and we've treated a bunch of those. We've did that ourselves a few times before we knew what this was. She said, no, you went real wide. You have clean margins. But So this is a very, so here it is, invading the normal parenchyma. So very, very, I'm going to skip over some of these in the interest of time, very, very dangerous disease. And also, this is a lady we saw. She's 43. We tell them they have to be imaged every year. So she came, nothing in the kidney. She was re-imaged. We said, I'd be followed at home, get imaging every year. She didn't. In 06, she had imaging, and they called it normal. We might have seen that a little differently, but they called it normal on the outside. Then on right before the holidays, right before Christmas in 2010, they, a friend of mine called me from the University of Baltimore, and he said, Marston, we got one of yours over here. I said, what do you got? He said, well, we've got this lady who now is 50. In just a few years, she'd gone from nothing to this. We took this out. She had this big tumor, 10 of 59 nodes positive. She developed advanced disease, and we lost her last year. So we don't, do, we don't recommend active surveillance for these three types of kidney cancer. We, do, we recommend surgical management. We do a very different operation. Remember I showed you that robotic where we went all around? When we go wide on these, we do these open. So I'll just show you a couple things. I'm going to stop. So this is caused by a Krebs cycle enzyme, fumarate hydratase. That doesn't make sense. How could a Krebs cycle enzyme mutation cause cancer? What we've shown is, so we see these in a very high percentage of our families, 99% now of the 200 patients we've evaluated, 200 families we've looked at, we found this mutation. This is a two-hit gene, just like VHL. You put these in mice, they make tumors. You put FH back in, re-express it, you don't get tumors. But how could loss of a Krebs cycle enzyme cause cancer? I'll show you just briefly a couple things. You get a, a four-part metabolic shift. One, we showed that these tumors uh, are, because the FH mutation, are characterized by the TCA cycle, goes counterclockwise, basically, uh, for most of it. And you get a glutamine-dependent reductive carboxylation, like I showed you in the high-grade, high-stage clear cell kidney cancer. So then this, again, gives us an almost identical set of targets, which we're looking at, which we're very encouraged about. We're seeing very promising results. But when FH is knocked out, you then affect the cell's ability, the TCA cycle's ability to do aneuploidosis to feed the, the electron transport chain. And I could show you all those metabolites, but I won't. But, uh, but so basically what you're doing is you're affecting oxidative phosphorylation, one of the things you're affecting. So the cell, these cells aren't breathing much. They're losing their oxygen uptake drops by 80%. Now the SVH mutation, which of course is complex too, their oxygen uptake goes to zero, but here you're down 80%. So the cell is very, this is the most aggressive cancer in my field, all right? And until we started therapy, I'll show you in a second, we lost all of these people with advanced disease. Now what happens is their O2 consumption goes way down, but they switch to aerobic glycolysis. This is what Dr. Warburg described. This is a Warburg effect in cancer. This is the aerobic glycolysis metabolic shift. They need a lot of glucose, but they're glucose dependent. This is their Achilles heel. Very different than clear cell. These boys, if you put them in low glucose, they'll die. So we thought, well, maybe. 
They're, clinically, they're very pet positive, not like clear cell, which is iffy. Sometimes it's pet positive. These are always pet positive. This guy, our radiology called normal. I said, I don't think so. That's vasculature difference. I don't think so. We did a PET scan, sadly, lit up like a Christmas tree. Uh, this guy, is there tumor there? Well, after guy had a nephrectomy two and a half years later, maybe in there. Yes, there is, right there. Different patient, pulmonary. Has he got disease there? Is this vasculature? Is it tumor? Uh, that's tumor. That's vasculature. So we showed also that fumarate goes up when fumarate hydratase is knocked out. And fumarate, we and others have shown, is an oncoprotein. does a number of things. I'll show you one thing. It does. We showed this with Lynn Neckers huh, 11 years ago now. So fumarate affects dioxygenases, these enzymes that are dependent on alpha-ketoglutarate. And this one, prolohydroxylase, Bill Kalin showed how elegant this is for, I showed you this a minute ago, for VHL-targeting HIF. Well, here, what happens is fumarate increases. It essentially outcompetes alpha-ketoglutarate, or 2-OG, for binding to prolohydroxylase and essentially poisons that enzyme. So what happens is if degrades, you have a VHL independent here mechanism for dysregulation of HIF degradation, and you end up here with a lot of VEGF going up, GLUT1, GLUT4. That's just what this cancer needs, is more vasculature and more sugar coming in, okay? I showed you earlier they are glucose dependent. So we developed a therapeutic approach, I'll end on this, to target with bevacizumab and erlotinib, targeting VEGF and targeting glucose transport. Cantley had, Lou Cantley had shown that this can affect, and Engelman had shown that this can affect erlotinib, one of your previous speakers at this talk, had, can block glucose transport. So with Romsternavacin, again, we did a clinical trial with Bev and erlotinib. I'll show you a couple patients and I'll end. First patient we treated. Again, at this point, we'd lost everybody. This guy had a dramatic partial response uh, for 18 months through this. This woman came to us. Both her sisters had died of metastatic kidney cancer, as did her father. She'd had, her doctor had done a partial nephrectomy, but he'd left disease on the kidney side and spilled cells all throughout her peritoneum. She came because we biopsied him, we proved that. Uh, uh, pathologically, and on PET scan, you could see tumor here. We started her on bevelotinib. She came back four months. We couldn't find disease. We saw her last spring, this spring, 10 years out. We still cannot find disease in this lady. We don't use the C word, the cure word in our place, but we can't find disease 10 years. So we have clinical trial. Currently, we're seeing dramatic response. And actually, we're 65 now. I meant to update that. 65% of our patients, stable disease in 40. This is the kind of thing we're seeing. This is not a CR. This is a, a very a, a PR. We see this, I would say, all the time. But we expect to see this now. This is a guy, nicest guy you ever meet in your life, banker from North, Car North Carolina, had nephrectomy. Four months later, came back with recurrent disease on the left-hand side, came to us in the fall of that year, which was a few years ago. And this disease here on PET, on therapy, goes to that. This can't see. This can't see. This may be little. PET in color are better, the red. So we have a number of trials looking at this. So are we home yet? No, we're not. But we've come to understand that, as I mentioned, the kidney cancer is not uh, a single disease. It's a number of different types of cancer made up of a number of, caused by a number of different genes, a number of different pathways. But we are hopeful, we're optimistic that targeting the genetic and metabolic basis of kidney cancer will provide the foundation for the development of effective forms of therapy 
for patients with this disease. And we feel strongly that understanding the genetic basis of this cancer, the one we work on, that we understand, has a huge difference on the way clinicians think about these cancers, the way they manage them, the way they manage them surgically, the way they manage them therapeutically, and really our goal, what we're really working on, getting ready to start trials on, is prevention. So if we can prevent these, then we won't have to worry about treatments, and we're actually optimistic about doing that. And our belief is, as I mentioned earlier in the talk, that kidney cancer is fundamentally a metabolic disease. And we think that by understanding these metabolic pathways, we'll really provide a solid foundation for the development of effective forms of therapy. And I list a number of colleagues in my group, and my colleague, Lynn Necker, Don Botero, uh, Tracy Ruroff, my colleague, also happens to be my wife, who we work with very closely on many of these uh, things. And in our group, uh, Ram Srinivasan, uh, Peter Pinto, two new—I mean, two newly tenure-track scientists at uh, NCI—we're thrilled about that. And my colleague Maria Moreno and our incredible colleagues in imaging, my colleagues at Northwestern, Texas Southwestern, University of Kentucky. And again, thank you very much. I'm very touched and honored to have had the opportunity to be with you all today and to learn about your incredible uh, cancer center and the wonderful things you all have going here. And so excited to know that hopefully we'll be able to work together in the future. I don't mean just necessarily our group, but intramural NCI. Uh, and of course, with Dr. Israel here, he knows everyone at our place, obviously, so that would be easy to do. But And also to have been uh, asked to give the David uh, Connor lecture. Thank you very much.